Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Exodus. And as we begin, let me begin with prayer, if you would join with me. Father, thank you for your written word that is truth and it is life and it guides and directs our thinking, our belief, and the way we live. Lord, we ask this morning that as we read your word, you would help us to bridge the gap between the Israelites of many thousands of years ago to our day and age, and help us to be transformed. Lord, I pray for your people this morning who eagerly sit and await you, await your speaking to them. Lord, may they hear you. May they draw near to you. And Lord, please help me to communicate clearly and in such a manner that glorifies your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In Philippians 3, Paul says that to write the same things to the Philippians is for their safety. And Peter in 2 Peter 1 says that he writes to remind them again of the truth. Repetition is about learning and it is about revealing. We, we learn by repetition. Steph Curry, who plays for the Golden State Warriors, not, he just doesn't only shoot 500 shots a day. He has to make 500 shots a day so that he can, through repetition, be the player that he is. And he is. He's one of the, the greatest players in NBA history. There was, a, there was a teacher, a golf teacher, named a Scotsman named Stuart Madden, who, who had a, t- a student who just repeatedly, again and again and again, hit shots into the water. And... Every time he would just look at Stuart Maiden, the, his, his instructor, and he would just, you know, and finally he just looks at Maiden and he goes, what should I do? Every shot goes in the water, hundreds of them. And Maiden just looks at him and says, lad, take two weeks off and then give up the game altogether. <laughs> <laughs> this story in Exodus is a repeat of what we learned last week. It's repetition. After the Red Sea, Israel's journey begins when God leads them into the wilderness of Shur by his servant Moses. After three days in that wilderness, they find no water except bitter water at a place called Mara. It is undrinkable water. And in desperation, Israel cries out. In an unbelief, they grumble at Moses, who then cries out to God. And God mercifully and remarkably and miraculously turns the water of Marah from bitter water into sweet and drinkable water. And during this first episode in the wilderness, God tells Moses that he's doing this to test the people, to test Moses and to test the people of God that they would learn to trust him, to trust his care for them and to obey his rules and obey his commandments. If they do so, they will not experience the same judgment that Egypt experienced because of their idolatry and their unbelief towards God, but they would experience blessing. 
They would experience God's provision. They would experience God's rich grace towards them. And as we saw, they did just shortly after Mara, God leads them to a real oasis called Elam, where there are 12 wells and 70 palm trees. And Israel is able to encamp there for a while as they are refreshed by God and God's provision. Repetition is about learning and revealing. And God is teaching Israel something, but he's also using this repetition to reveal something in Israel. Because not long after they arrive in Elam, God up and moves the cloud into another wilderness, the wilderness of Sin. Now, that word sin, as you will read here in Exodus, is not the English word sin that we use to describe disobedience. It is, it is just a, a description of the area, the wilderness area in which they're at. And it is near the, the wilderness area of Sinai. And it very well could be a derivative of that. So don't get caught up in, in some sort of metaphor. Oh, they're in the wilderness of sin and that's all they're going to do. No, that's not what is happening. Now this, but this new wilderness is very much like the old one. It's a, and it's a similar experience as before. And the words that I used last week to describe their wilderness experience aptly describe this one as well. But I will be adding one additional word this morning. Look with me in Exodus 16. They set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's the circumstance. We learned last week the circumstance. Deep into the desert they go. Now consider the timeline. After the Red Sea, they, they walk for three days into the wilderness of shore, finding no water along the way. And finally at Marah, they discover water that's undrinkable. And they grumble at Moses and they grumble at God because God is the one ultimately who has, who has led them there. But God graciously and mercifully meets their need. He turns the, the bitter water sweet. And then he leads them to show them what it means to be provided for by God. He leads them to Elam and they find a rich oasis of water. And now it has been a month and a half since they have left Egypt, since they have left the Red Sea. And God soon moves the cloud and he moves it into the desert for another month of wandering in the heat and the dirt. And they don't understand that God is at work in them as they encounter <clears throat> test number two. Look at me in verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. I will test them. But the people of God don't see that God is 
at work in them. All in all, these people are going to eventually go through seven wilderness areas. This is just number two in the list. And they will be tested in every one of those wilderness areas. And in this wilderness, they will face the same test. They are in the wilderness. They are now, instead of lacking water, they are lacking food. They are again grumbling. They are again accusing Moses. And they are again experiencing a patient God who does not rebuke them, provides abundant provision, and adds more laws that they are to obey. It would it would almost be comical if it was not so tragic the way Israel responds to this new trial. After all, they have seen what God can do. Rescuing them from Egypt, destroying Pharaoh's army, parting the Red Sea. They're walking on dry land, leading them in a cloud day by day and a pillar of fire every night, providing sweet water at Marah and abundant water in Elam, and they still cannot find it in their heart to trust him. Their circumstances are similar, and so is their response. That is their circumstance. And what is their response? Same word again from last week, they sin. Like last time when faced with difficult circumstances, they sin by grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. All of them are grumbling. It's not just a few folks. It is the whole congregation. And ultimately we learn down in verse 8, Moses says, and then Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. It's easy to grumble to one another. Especially when we don't recognize that ultimately our grumbling is against God. It's against the one who has created us, the one who has rescued us, the one who cares for us, the one who promises to never leave us nor forsake us, the one who leads us to places like Elam, the one who makes bitter water sweet, and yet... So quickly, it's easy to grumble. And tests come all the time. Tests come all the time. And it's not... We recognize the bigger tests. If it's a real physical trial, or it is a financial trial, or, or something going on, that, that we somehow are able to... to really step into a, a, a place of faith and trust in the Lord on the bigger things. It's just kind of the little day-to-day stuff where we get most tripped up, where our, our character gets revealed. It's, it's not just repetition that God uses to test us. It also is revealing that God is using the test to show what's going on in our hearts. I Face that this morning driving here. It's a two-lane road, and of course, 
there had to be somebody that decided that 10 miles an hour below the speed limit is the way to go. And, and the person behind them, which was in front of me, was, did not pass them like they should have. And, and, and their license plate, because I was very close to the license plate of the person in front of me, their license plate only had three letters on it. It said, oh no. That was the license plate. And that's exactly how I felt when we were driving. Oh no, because this was just outside of Urbana and I have all the way to Clarksburg to go. And in my heart, there is impatience and God is not only testing me and trying to teach me, it's revealing in me that I'm impatient. And it's in those ways, day in and day out, that God uses to reveal in us what needs to be transformed. And that's what he's doing here with Israel. They are ultimately complaining against God because he led them into the wilderness and there's no food. And look, Israel's not happy with God's meal plan. They, they don't like what's happening. Naturally, it's, now, naturally, they become tired and hungry because they are walking in and they're, they're trekking through this desert. It's hot, arid, dry. And once again, you know, they, they come face to face with a trial and they do what they did before. They grumble and complain. And it's not, it's not a lack of water. Of course, it's a lack of food. And, and the reality is, though, they don't lack for food. They, they do not lack for food. Listen, they have milk and they have cheese and they even have meat because they have thousands of cattle and goats and sheep with them. But they still complain. It, they want a variety of food they had in Egypt. Verse 3, And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. They want a variety of food. So much so that they act like they're starving to death, which simply isn't true. That would be, that would be a common complaint my children would have as we're driving somewhere. I'm starving to death. Really? Oh, well, we'll say nice things at your funeral, dear, because we're not stopping. <laughs> the problem isn't a lack of food. The problem is their craving hearts. Psalm 78 describes this experience. This directly describes this Exodus experience. And this is what the, the writer of Psalm 78 says. They tested God in their heart by demanding food they craved. Psalm 78, 18. They tested God in their heart by demanding food they craved. Rather than God testing them. Instead, they are testing God right now. They confuse what they want with what they actually need, and they complain that their situation is actually worse than it is. They, they do something pretty much all complainers do. They exaggerate how life used to be before the trial. Oh, remember the good old days back in Egypt when we were beloved slaves of Pharaoh? <laughs> Remember how, how good it was? We had 
pots of meat, plenty of food, water and clothing and houses. And what do we have now? What do we have now? We have sand, we have heat, we have tents, and we have nothing to eat. Honestly, it appears it's a lot easier to get Israel out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of Israel. They are so misguided by their sin. Listen, they even declare that it would be better. Listen, look at verse 3. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. What they are saying, they are so deceived by their complaining and arrogant sin that they say it would have been better that we had died by God's hand at the Passover than what we are experiencing now. Which would have meant they would have never experienced God's salvation on that night and his deliverance out of Egypt. Their craving is so powerful and so deceptive. They would rather die at the Passover by the hand of God. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Then, by not having enough food. Even though they had been spared from all the plagues, the angel of death, the drowning at the Red Sea, they would be better off. They exaggerate how bad things really are. And that is often our temptation when we complain. We exaggerate how bad things really are. It just, the story grows like the fish that we caught. It just gets bigger and bigger. It's just not true. Here's what the problem. They forgot how bad it was in Egypt. They forgot how they had to cry out to God for deliverance from Egypt. They forgot how brutal and cruel Pharaoh was to them in Egypt. And so, Egypt doesn't seem so bad in the midst of this awful wilderness. So they accuse Moses of trying to kill them. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Really? Really? They're they're all going to die of hunger? And they know that God is the one who led them there because the cloud is still there. Sin is so illogical. Sin makes no sense. Sin sin is insanity. It really is. we We think with no logical truth at all it is just it just it just makes us think crazy and that's what's happening to Israel it can you know it can seem like somehow suffering they're because they're suffering they're not really suffering can can short circuit our brain causing us to think irrationally but it's really not true suffering just reveals a short circuit in our hearts that's been there all along it's our I mean, 
Here's what Israel's problem is. It's their sinful, sinful belief that they deserve better. It's their sinful belief that God is foolish in his sovereign plans. It's their sinful belief that they would have chosen a better and wiser plan for their lives. This is not the pathway we would have chosen. Here, let, let, let me work the cloud for a little bit. And since God doesn't care, he isn't good. So they learn nothing by it. That is their sin. Their circumstances, their sin. And how does God respond to Israel? Once again, grumbling at a test. I know how I would respond. Off with your heads. In fact, let me take you back to the Red Sea. We're going to part it for a few minutes. Go ahead, crawl in. (laughs) Rather, God responds with remarkable Patience and grace. And that is our third word, grace. God responds with grace. Look at verse 4 in chapter 16 with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know... And there's that theme again. Remember, what is, what is Exodus about? That you may know him. Knowing God. That's what Exodus is about. That Israel learns to know God. You shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. What do you understand about Israel? They grumble. But Moses goes on and writes, And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, again, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In their bitter grumbling, God does not rebuke them or correct them, admonish them, or punish them. He simply and powerfully makes himself known to them by revealing his glory in the cloud and in practical provision of bread and meat. He again demonstrates his patient love and care for his people in their moment of need. And he has always done the same for us. God hears them. Verse 7 
He has heard. The Lord has heard your grumbling. He has heard again and again. It says the Lord has heard. Verse 9, he has heard your grumbling. Verse 11, he has heard your grumbling. Their grumbling against God does not go unnoticed. He hears, he's aware, he knows, he watches. And yet God's grace is never overcome by our sin. Our sin is always overcome by God's grace. Even in our worst moments, God does not reject us. And we have worst moments. This is one of Israel's worst moments. He doesn't close his ears. Now, it doesn't mean he ignores our sin and he doesn't consider it a serious problem. He does. He does. And as we'll learn later, Exodus must come to places of repentance because once the law is given in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai, you're going to see that when the people grumble, when the people sin against God, consequences come. Punishment does come. Judgment is experienced. But at this moment, as these people are being tested and God is teaching them, they are learning and, and what is in their hearts is being revealed. God, God's grace is extended them in a way that is so patient that he doesn't, he doesn't admonish or rebuke or correct or punish. His grace always wins out. Israel's wilderness experience and test have a purpose. As God brings about his purpose in our lives, in the same way he does it patiently. How many here change really quickly? How many here change really slowly? Yeah, we all change slowly. And that's why we're all around one another to help you change faster. No, not. (laughs) God brings about his purpose in our lives and he does it patiently. He, He shows us his mercy and grace in this, in this passage, by not rebuking them. Instead, he does something totally unexpected. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, here's, here's grace. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. He gives them bread from heaven. And then verse, verse 8, he says, And when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, another sign of God's grace, he gives them meat to eat. Now, just understand that the quail that he gives them to eat at this moment is for only one night. It's for only one night. It's not every night. Only the manna comes every day. This is just, this is kind of a a one night, let's go out to a really nice restaurant somewhere in the wilderness of sin and get cooked quail. That's what's happening right here. Now, this new bread manna that he gives them in Psalm 78, 24, the, the word manna, literally, the, the, is, the Israelites, when, when they are introduced to manna, look at verse 15. When the people of Israel saw it, speaking of the manna, or let me go look. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, verse 13. And in the morning, dew lay about the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? 
That's what manna means. What is it? <laughs> or literally, it just means what? That's, so when you're talking about manna, you're just saying what? So if somebody asks you a question, you might say manna? <laughs> what? And well, this new bread manna in Psalm 78, 12, that's always provided for him, the writer of Psalm 78 says this. He describes the manna as the bread of angels. The bread of angels. Is that not grace? Is that not a, an expression of God's grace in the midst of a test and the midst of grumbling and complaining in the midst of charging God, accusing God of wrongdoing? Is this not grace? I am giving you the bread of angels. And in Psalm, later in Psalm 78, when talking about the meat, the writer says that the meat that was provided for Israel that night was abundant as the dust. Quail everywhere. And then it goes on to say everyone is, lacking, is, is not lacking. There's one, verse 18, but when they measured it, the, the manna with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. Abundance. Everyone is filled. No one is lacking food. That is the grace of God. Every parent can identify when you put some food in front of your children. I don't like it. You've never tasted it. But I know I won't like it. Fine. Eat nothing. No. We parent. And we get them through. And some of us have children who will chew a piece of chicken for up to two hours until they finally spit it out. Yes, we experience those things. But God gives them food that is abundant with no lack as the dust of the earth. Meat is everywhere. But God doesn't stop there. He goes on. Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to him, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath. So the Sabbath was not established at Mount Sinai in the law. It began here. And now, and we'll, we'll go through the, the commandments. We will, we will see more And Devin will be preaching more on the Sabbath. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. Now understand, early on when they went to gather, verse 19, and Moses said to him, let no one leave any of, of the manna over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some of them left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and it stank. Of course, Moses was, was angry with them. And so here, they're to gather, but on the Sabbath, they're to gather twice as much. And it's to be overnight, but God does not cause it to stink and to, to become rancid. No, why? Because God is providing for them. So they laid it aside till morning, as Moses commanded, verse 24. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. 
And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And of course, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. God gives Israel, as a sign of his grace, Sabbath, a and promises to daily provide for them even on the Sabbath when they cannot gather manna. The Sabbath is another expression of God's amazing grace. He is watching out for his people. He's protecting them, giving them a day of rest, and more importantly, establishing a day where they're able to draw near to him. And I, I'm not going to go further into the Sabbath because Devin will be preaching on it. Um, but we're no different. We need food and rest. And God has provided it for us. But like Israel, our greatest need has never been food that we physically eat, but spiritual food that nourishes our souls. It's, and it's only in Christ that our souls are most satisfied. Our nourishment is found in Him, is found in His, his Word. This, this is our food first and foremost. This is what is to most satisfy us. In John 6, Jesus says this. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. It is Christ. And these folks in Israel are just beginning to learn about God and God's provision. And that manna is, manna is delicious, it's sweet, it tastes like honey, and it is the bread of angels. But God's point is, this is not what ultimately nourishes you. And it's why I give you the Sabbath. What ultimately nourishes you is me. And for us, we know what that means. It is Christ who is the bread of life. It is the one who died on the cross for our sins, who rose again from the dead, who stands before God, interceding before God on our behalf, who gives us life. He is our bread. He is our life. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews talks about this Sabbath rest When he says this, 
for those, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So, so we see that we were unable to enter because of unbelief. They didn't enter the promised land. This group of people did not enter the promised land because of their unbelief. They never experienced God's true Sabbath rest because they forgot who God was. They forgot his deeds and they rebelled against him. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, therefore, while, promise, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of, of you should seem to have failed to reach it for good news came to us just as to them. Good news. They, Israel had good news. God is with you. They had good news every day. Here is a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Here is provision. Here is rescue. Do you not see the good news of God that he's with you? And we can forget that Christ is with us. Israel's test shows that they haven't learned and it reveals the unbelief in their heart. I mean, they, they, God tells them, don't keep more manna than for one day. And what do they do? They keep manna and it turns, to, it turns rancid. It, it stinks and it has worms in it. And then God says, keep manna for an extra day on the, for the Sabbath and don't go out and collect. And what do they do on, on that day? Oh, I want more food. I'm going out. I'm collecting. They, they don't obey the Lord. They haven't learned. It, it, it also reveals the, the, the faithfulness of our patient and loving God. How grace-filled he is. Deuteronomy 8. Moses writes of looking back to this time. And he humbled you. And he let you hunger. And he fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The very thing that Jesus quoted when he was in the wilderness. And when he was hungry. He looked to God. And not to the cravings of his heart. And God in all of this is committed to showing Israel his glory. Verse 7. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Manna was a manifestation of God's glory. And again in verse 10, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. They could never distance themselves from the glory of God. God shows us his glory that we might give glory to him. Because at our essence, every person here was created to be a worshiper of God. We were created to be worshipers who give glory to God. But sin, sin clouds our eyes. It turns our hearts inward. And yet God in his infinite, infinite patience and grace continues to show us the glory in Christ. You know, we talk a lot about glory. We talk about what, what is man's chief end? Westminster Catechism. First question. What is man's chief end? 
And most can quote it. Man's chief end is to glorify God. Exactly. What exactly is God's glory? What exactly is it? I, I have looked up, I spent, I spent two hours looking up definitions of God's glory. And here's what I discovered. Nobody really can get their arms around it. Because it's, it's, it's other. It's eternal. It's infinite. It's, it's just beyond. Uh, there, there's, there's no way to, to package glory. To package God's glory. We certainly can package our own glory. I'm such a great guy. I mean, we can do that, but we can't package God's glory. But let me just help you out. His glory, just think of his glory as his character and his attributes that are revealed to us. It's, it's the beauty we see in him that causes our hearts to, to treasure him, to, to love him, to want to be near him, to praise him, to worship him. Um, it's, it's our it's being able to see some of his infinite worth, which to our human minds really is incomprehensible. <laughs> it is, it's, it's the glimpse. Most of all, we see glory in Christ. That's where we see glory. We see glory in Christ in his incarnation. We see glory in Christ in his sinless life. We see glory in Christ in his care for people. We see glory in Christ in his suffering. We see glory in Christ in his death. We see glory in Christ in his resurrection. And we, see, we will see glory in Christ when he returns. That, my friends, is glory. So how does God get Israel to this place where they don't lose sight of his glory and they live to display his glory? How, do they, how does God transform them from an unbelieving and ungrateful group of grumblers to a worshiping community that does display his marvelous grace and glory? How does he do it? How does he do it? Well, and that's this additional fourth word and it's called obedience. Obedience, the, the final word that describes their experience. He, he began this, this, this instruction back in chapter 15. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes... There's, there's the beginning. And then look at verse 28 here. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days, remain each of you in its place. So the people rested on the seventh day. And then he goes on to talk about their history. But... What is the Lord doing here? What is the Lord teaching us here? In 16.4, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. The this test continues in this next wilderness journey because they need to learn obedience to humbly 
and joyfully follow wherever the Lord leads them. And so do we. And sometimes the Lord leads us to places that we would never choose to go. They need to learn obedience to trust Him when no provision is in sight and not grumble about it. They need to learn obedience when provision is everywhere and not hoard it, but be generous. Because provision was everywhere when the Israelites woke up in the morning and there's manna everywhere and they're going out, they're collecting it and they keep some, they disobey and they keep it overnight, they hoard. They learn, learn to need, need to learn obedience to keep the Sabbath rules. Listen, these rules are established for their care and provision. These commandments are there for their protection. These commandments in Scripture are here for us, for our protection. They're here. We learn obedience. And when we go through a wilderness trial, when we go through a lack of provision or we go through an abundance of provision, we're not just taking a test. God's using it to reveal what's in our hearts. Obedience isn't always easy, but it's always the right thing to do because it's God's plan for our good and for his glory. So my question this morning is, what are you learning about your circumstances right now? Your wilderness experience right now? What do they reveal about you? God is after the same things in us that he was after in Israel. How how do you respond to God's testing? Do you obey his word or do you grumble? Do you grumble about the place he's led you you to? Do you you grumble about the things that he's provided or not provided? Do you grumble about the circumstances you are in? Do you grumble about the commands he gives you? And he expects you to obey. Or... Do you experience the blessing of obedience? Brothers and sisters, God faithfully and lovingly repeats this test again and again in Scripture and again and again in our lives. Why? Because He loves us. Because He's transforming us. Because He's doing it for our good and He's doing it for His glory. And so as you're, you're reading through Exodus, trans, trans, transplant yourself back into their time and put yourselves in their shoes and then move forward back into your day and age. Think, okay, who am I like? And what am I like? So that you might learn and that when your heart is revealed, it expresses the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithful teaching to us, that you are day by day teaching us to love you. Thank you for the circumstances that you bring into our lives, even when they are difficult, because you love us and you're using it to transform us into the image of your son. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for your love. 
Jesus' name, amen.